Hello, welcome to the latest Vicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Vicom, and I'm here in Jerusalem. And across town, also in Jerusalem, I'm delighted to be joined again by Shalom Lipner. Shalom, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Good to be with you, Richard. So for, for our audience that aren't familiar, Shalom is a real uh, kind of government insider. He worked for 26 years um, serving seven consecutive prime ministers within the prime minister's office. He is now a non-resident senior fellow of Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council and a former non-resident senior fellow of the Centre of Middle East at the Brookings Institute. We actually spoke to another one of your former colleagues from Brookings earlier this week, Tamara Kaufman-Witz, to discuss kind of an American perspective. So I'm really delighted to kind of to include an Israeli view of all things kind of on the on the diplomatic agenda. Perhaps, uh, Shalom, we could start with kind of the, the speculation that we hear of what to expect from the last two months of the of the Trump administration, I suppose primarily both on the Iranian track, but also on the uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian front as well. Well, Richard, I think I think broadly we can certainly say that that uh, you know Trump continues to be a wild card uh, to the to the extent that that his policy throughout throughout the past four years has been you know largely uh, let's call it unconventional. We can expect more of that now that he's completely untethered without the burden of, of an election campaign around his neck. That that leave, that creates a lot of question marks. I think I think you know we do know a few things. We know that um, that we've heard we've heard discussion of a of a possible bid for a 2024 presidency, which means that he might still have an eye on you know things that would that would uh, that would service that candidacy when we come down the road. Um, we know that that he spent a lot of time over the years talking about you know various world leaders as my best friend and a good friend of mine. That combined with his sort of re-election prospects might lead him to. Uh, shall we say, show favor towards leaders that uh, don't ditch him in the, in the home stretch when, you know, people are sort of diverting attention to the president-elect. And we also know, as uh, or at least we think we know, that one of his aides actually was quoted telling CNN that, uh, that their intention is to light as many fires as possible to make it difficult for Biden. So I don't think that we're, we're looking at a president that's planning on spending the last two months of his tenure um, being cautious and quiet. That, that, you know, sort of creates a tricky dance, shall we say, for, for his interlocutors who... Uh, on the one hand, want to want to prepare for what's you know coming on January twentieth with the advent of a new administration, but we'll be looking towards the last two months to you know maybe not write off the incumbent right now and uh, you know conceivably see how that would play into their agendas until we uh, until we reach the transfer of power. When you talk about lighting fires, I mean, do you think? I mean, as as a follower of kind of U.S. politics, how how normal slash unprecedented is this for kind of a for president? Maybe maybe saying it out out loud is is unprecedented, but kind of to be thinking like that, to be uh, to be planning it to 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 to, to, to kind of uh, burn the burn the forest before the new guy comes in. Well, I mean, sort of to use Diplo speak, I would say it's highly irregular. Uh, we, we certainly in other countries as well, but certainly in the United States, I mean, we've we've uh, become accustomed, shall we say, to a tradition of uh, you know orderly handover. Yeah, uh, maybe you know we can go back to two thousand. We remember how the how the, the final tallies went to the court, but you know soon after that sort of resolved itself. And and you know other than sort of small pranks that maybe we we we, uh, we read about in the papers, shall we say? I don't think that we've ever seen this kind of uh, dated, certainly not, but even a uh, an overt intention, shall we say, to go ahead and trip up what you know what might come what might come next. But having said that, I mean, you know, we've seen we've seen, shall we say, a uh, sort of a penchant sometimes to uh, to adopt the scorched earth approach to uh, to running for. Yes. I mean, that kind of that it, it would not be it would not be highly, um, shall we say, 
different, for lack of a better word, for, for you know, Trump to sort of continue along that line now. I mean, you know, that's clear. His supporters clearly feel that, uh, you know, that they were cheated as it is and that, you know, they came, they came to power to turn things around. And it would stand to reason that based on everything we've seen, that uh, that Trump would be perfectly perfectly uh, comfortable to try and be able to sort of you know further that line of thinking as long as he possibly could and it remains in the Oval Office. So um, you know again it, it it's highly irregular, but I think that that's just the, you know the, those are the polarized times we live in, and as a result of that, I don't think we can really rule out things that we would have considered inconceivable in, in you know any previous uh, situation prior to the inauguration. Mm. And specific, I suppose, on, on Iran, I mean, the speculation is around more covert operations. We've heard kind of a call for even heavier sa sanctions. Are these, I mean, do you think that's that's likely? And are they kind of, from a technical perspective, are there sanctions that, they, that Trump can put in place that uh, the Biden then can't uh, roll back afterwards? I mean, look, a lot of things, obviously, that he can do can be rolled back. And it's you know far for me to say what he will or won't do, but I mean I, I you know we certainly can point to a couple of uh, data points that we've seen in recent weeks. I mean we all saw the uh, or most of us I assume we'll see the New York Times story from not long ago where apparently he was asking or again considering military options, but you know pulled back after after there was pushback. It's also a story that broke yesterday out of Israel saying that Israeli military planners are sort of cautiously preparing themselves for the the potential that, that he could take that kind of action. So so that's certainly much more extreme, shall we say, than the root of, of, of uh, you know of heightened economic sanctions and and obviously to roll back. So we we don't know obviously that he would do that, but we we also don't know for sure that he won't. And and in fact it ties into a lot of what I was talking about earlier about sort of his but we understand to be his approach towards the last two months in terms of, you know, continuing to, shall we say, to, uh, you know, to come towards people who have, have been his, you know, stalwart friends over the past few years. And of course, you know, again, ties in, if in fact we went down the military route, shall we say, with Iran, then I think we could definitely look at that as one of the, uh, shall we call them fires, right, that the, that they were leaving in the path of, of uh, his successor administration. So, so mm -hmm. you know, don't know, but I think that's you know, the, that's been the defining characteristic of Donald Trump's presidency, the unpredictability of things. And I think that's exactly where we stand right now. If we look forward now, I mean, we saw this week uh, they had the announcement of, of, uh, of Biden's foreign policy defense teams. What are your initial thoughts about those uh, appointments? Well, I mean, I think we've certainly seen, shall we say, a return to, uh, you know, to the establishment. We're looking at well-known quantities, you know, traditional uh, centrists, so we call them, have long track records in the, in the halls of, uh, of decision-making and formulating foreign policy. Um, so I don't think we're gonna see a lot of surprises here. I think we've, uh, we've all heard the, uh, the intention, shall we say, of, of, of the president-elect and the people around him to go ahead and, and rehabilitate relationships, global alliances that, the, that, that maybe have frayed between the United States and some of its traditional partners in recent years. Conceivably, that will lead towards working with you know, greater consensus than we've seen also in recent time. And, and also, I mean, we also take into account that, uh, and this is obviously not just indigenous to America, but, you know, but clearly to the extent that we're talking about issues of foreign policy, their domestic plate is very full. That's not to say that these things won't be important and they won't, when they won't, uh, they won't strive to go ahead and, and you know, outstretch a friendly hand, shall we say, to, to their allies. But I mean, one, one would uh, one would expect that the administration will be almost fully absorbed at this point with you know their uh, with the health crisis and with the economic fallout of uh, of the coronavirus, um, and in that respect, it, you know, 
will be very very different from you know the governments in Israel or in the UK as well. Going back to kind of uh, casting our minds back to the to the Obama administration, you witnessed up close, I suppose, what the soap opera between uh, relations between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Obama. Well, how do you expect uh, the relationship to be handled this time by by Prime Minister Netanyahu with uh, with President Biden? Well, I, I mean, just just like we said, you know, just so we know that Biden's staff are people that, uh, you know, that are known quantities, I think the president-elect is very much the same way. Um, he's, he's made a point over the years and up through, to, you know, the current moment to, uh, to emphasize that he is a friend of Israel. Um, and, and as opposed to maybe some of the tension with the Obama era, I mean, in this case, you know, we have, we have you know, plenty of precedent to fall back on. I mean, he's, he's not exactly somebody who you know, was a meteor through the skies that, you know, nobody was really fully acquainted with, but somebody who's been, you know, walking the halls of, of uh, Capitol Hill for, for almost five decades. So I, I think that, you know, he has every intention of maintaining those relationships. The, the potential hotspots, shall we say, where there, you know, obstacles that tensions could, uh, could come to play. I think people recognize or conceivably the issue with, um, obviously, the Iranian issue and possibly, you know, the, the attempt to restart some sort of uh, negotiation or dialogue between Israel and the Palestinians. But again, he, he uh, you know, we talked about the people that he's appointed so far to staff the administration. We all have all taken note, shall we say, some of the dissatisfaction among maybe uh, more hostile progressive elements within the Democratic Party, maybe who would have liked to see uh, sort of turn the ship around. But I think that, that, that what, we, what we can tell at this point is that definitely the president-elect is very much trying to uh, you know, create an administration and conceivably a policy approach in his own image. I, I don't, uh, I personally don't subscribe, shall we say, you know, some people have suggested this would be a third Obama term. Um, you know, obviously many of these people did serve in the Obama administration, but most of them have histories as, as you know, sort of close associates of, of Joe Biden himself, you know, that maybe joined on to the Obama administration. But I think that, you know, they very much will be serving at the pleasure of this president and his agenda. We may see, we may see some of the same conflicts that we had, but I don't think we'll see them at the same intensity. To the extent that there are, you know, disagreements, maybe even, even strong ones, I think that 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 both Israel and the United States are, are committed, shall we say, to uh, you know to air those differences in private and not to have them play out in the public as maybe they did uh, a couple years back. And and I think I think that that bodes well, bodes well for the substance and for the you know the atmospherics of, uh, of that relationship. So I mean, on the substance of kind of uh, Iran Iran policy. We've heard kind of there, there's been kind of muted criticism. There's recognition that uh, that it didn't take into account the, the original JCPOA didn't take into account kind of Iran's uh, uh, ballistic missile program and other kind of their behavior of the region. How real and also kind of specific critiques of uh, within the deal itself, within, within nuclear, the the uh, the, the exploration of. Uh, of, of uranium and, and the sunset clause, et cetera. I mean, where do you think the, the Biden administration kind of will prioritize and will, will succeed in kind of closing some of those loops? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's 100% true what you say and that, you know, the, the US negotiators at the time um, were very forthright about the fact as well that, you know, that the deal it dealt with, you know, sort of the impending nuclear, nuclear problem. It didn't address all those other issues, but that, you know, they, they claimed at the time that was not the point. But look, in terms of in terms of where I moved from now, I mean, you know, this this the incoming president has, uh, you know, has said on record that he favors a path of diplomacy. It will it, it certainly in terms of the trapping seems that it will be less belligerent than what we've seen in the past four years under Trump. Um, but at the same time, we also have a different reality now. You know, th things, things that people have had the experience of, you know, what the, the past four years have and have not accomplished, what may have worked, may not have worked. There's certainly people have taken notice of the fact that, uh, well, a number of things. First of all, I've taken notice of the fact that the, the reading program has not stopped, notwithstanding whatever measures the Trump administration has taken. Um, they, uh, we also have seen, and, you know, this could just be sort of negotiating posture, but the Iranians have, have you know, been saying clearly that, you know, they're, you know, that the... Uh, 
you know, they, they're not feeling particularly benevolent right now either. And that, you know, they're not, they want to renegotiate a deal. So, you know, it's not clear that it's going to be so simple to, to sort of bang on the table and say, well, you know, we want to reset the clock four years earlier. You know, certainly, I mean, in Israel, I mean, Israelis, the Israeli government is obviously skeptical. They would prefer and have preferred, uh, you know, Trump's approach to uh, read the riot act to the Iranians on this, whether or not it's been, you know, achieved full success or not. And they are, you know, in Jerusalem, people are very, um, you know, are wary about what, what what could be a more conciliatory conciliatory tactic towards the Iranians. But at least personally, I wouldn't be rushing to any conclusions. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the Iranians would also prefer to, well, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't, I don't know that we would say they'd prefer to, to, to tone down the flames, but I'm sure that they would, uh, you know, prefer not to be on the, uh, the receiving end of, of increased sanctions per se. So, or, 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 you know, the trappings of that. So I think that, you know, they would at least have we would show some willingness to improving their immediate situation right now, especially under the uh, under the weight of uh, of COVID. I think it's clear that renegotiating a deal, whether it's you know very much in the guise of the JCPOA or something a little bit different, it's not going to be as simple as just sort of saying, "Well, that's what we want to do, so let's get the job very quickly." I think that you know, let's get the job done quickly. I think everybody's going to be watching this very closely, but I don't think we're going to see you know immediate changes of any sort. And uh, you know, and, and and time will tell how this does or doesn't play out. What's, what's your assessment of kind of the success of, of Pompeo's maximum pressure campaign? There are those argued, obviously, that uh, the levels of uranium since they pulled out of the deal have now increased. What's, how, do you, how, do you, how do you rate his success? Limited. I mean, you know, we obviously that, you know, we, we still haven't crossed thresholds, but we are approaching sun um, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the program is still in play. I mean, it hasn't been it hasn't been uh, completely eliminated. You know, what, 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 by, what might be required to achieve that remains to be seen still. It, it, in a sense, it's, I mean, it presents an interesting case study, right? Because we've seen the approach of the Obama administration. Now we've seen the follow-up approach of the Trump administration and it will fall to the incoming administration to process all that data and decide how they possibly move forward to, to achieve the goals that, uh, that everybody at least is committed to, which is to make sure the Iranians do not achieve the nuclear weapons capability. If we can talk for a moment about kind of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian front, I mean, clearly this is not everything you've mentioned, kind of, this is not going to be a, a high priority in terms for the new administration. Um, but the, nevertheless, I mean, how much political capital do you expect them to, to spend on this and what, what would there be their priorities? I think it's clear to all that the uh, the incoming administration certainly has a different outlook towards the question of the of the, Pal of the, the Palestinian question. President-elect, the people around him have been very clear that they're committed to a two-state solution. Prime Minister Netanyahu, historically, from the time of the Bar-Ilan speech, in one form or another, has also dedicated well, dedicated is a strong word, but has pledged himself to that outcome. Um, but has but has pulled back in recent years from it. You don't hear that language from him. It's clearly unpopular in the domestic Israeli politics right now. So it's possible that you know that uh, it's almost actually probable, shall we say, that the, that his approach, Netanyahu's approach, will come into clash with the approach that uh, will be taken by the White House. That's not to say that you know the White House will have a lot of capital or time to invest in the issue. I think just as we've seen that uh, that much of uh, that much what much of what the Trump administration has done as far as the Israeli-Palestinian question has been, has been some would say rhetorical, rhetorical and symbolic. Um, whether it's been you know, recognition issues of the Golan or Jerusalem or moving the embassy, I, I think that you know we can expect to see sort of you know the Biden administration moving to roll some of those things back or at least to equate them. I don't think that's pretty much why it's it's almost consensually accepted. I think that the embassy will not be the American embassy in Jerusalem will not be moved rolled back to Tel Aviv. Um, in a sense, I think Trump kind of took that out of the fire for Republicans and Democrats alike, seeing as how the original resolution was, uh, you know, passed with strong bipartisan support in Congress many years ago. 
Um, I think that the opposition that we saw at the time was more contextual and, and you know played into the uh, into the polarized politics of the time. I don't think we're going to see things change in that respect. Many people expect uh, expect the incoming administration to reinstate the uh, U.S. consulate in Jerusalem as a as an address for the Palestinians. Um, and, and probably to reopen the PLO mission in Washington. I mean, I think we'll see those kinds of things. I don't think that the, uh, and, and, and I mean, we've, we've seen sort of conflicting messages out of different place, you know, out of, out of all the uh, relevant capitals. On the one hand, I think that there's an expectation that both Israelis and Palestinians will be treading carefully and the Palestinians may see more of an opportunity right now. The Israelis certainly don't wanna set off any alarms in the White House by doing things that would be controversial um, and that might sort of attract the ire of the president. In, in order partially to sort of keep this on a low fire, um, but at the same time, you know that it's we've also seen uh, we've also seen it's coming things coming from the other direction. There was a report that the Palestinians are preparing a list of demands. I quote the word um, for the mm. administration. We've also seen renewed talk in Israel of uh, of uh, settlement construction again, which you know may or may not actually take place. So I mean, we see a lot of we see a lot of countervailing messaging. And as I think on a lot of these issues, we're also playing multi-dimensional chess. I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of players here. There are a lot of spoilers. There, there are people with, uh, you know, there are people who may want to uh, steer the uh, steer the ship of state one direction, but there might be other people who are, you know, at the same time with with uh, other levers looking to make that more complicated. So, um, I mean, my my tendency is to believe that as long as there are not any major uh, major outbursts, for lack of a better word, out here in Israel, if things sort of remain in some kind of status quo the way that they are right now that uh, the administration will probably prefer to, to dedicate most of its resources, again, to dealing with domestic issues right now. Um, but if things were to become, you know, complicated or somebody or one side or the other took advantage of a new situation to try and, uh, you know, try to move pieces on the chessboard, then we, you know, we might be up, uh, we might be up against a very different situation. And I would say I mean, more broadly, there are two, two of your former colleagues are kind of the lead Israeli uh, figures in the US right now, Ambassador Derma, um, and Ambassador Erdan at the UN seems to take over from uh, from Derma in uh, in Washington. Um, there's been an idea that they need to learn to speak uh, Democrat again. Um, how do you rate their chances of kind of uh, of kind of engaging uh, in a meaningful sense with this administration? Well, this is certainly a good time for a turnover. You know, whether or not people like it, I mean, I think that the it's, you know, the broadly uh, broadcasted view has been that you now that the current that the current of the outgoing shall we call him ambassador has been very much. Uh, uh, working in, in tandem with the administration, there's been a uh, large push, certainly in democratic circles, about you know what's been perceived as partisanship. It's a good time to maybe sort of change captains right now. I think that you know there'll be there'll be multiple things that people will be looking at. They'll be looking at the degree of the you know sort of the access that the incoming ambassador has to the to to, to Prime Minister Netanyahu in Jerusalem. I mean, I think everyone acknowledges that Derma's access was unprecedented and then. And that pretty much everything that he said was was you know directly representational of what his prime minister thought, um, because as we as we both know historically sort of the uh, relationship between Jerusalem and Washington, notwithstanding the presence of an ambassador on the ground in Washington, has often been managed directly out of Jerusalem. So in the case of Ambassador Dermer, I think that you know very much the person there was was uh, was a direct channel. Whether or not the incoming ambassador in Washington, the current U.N. ambassador, shares that kind of. Uh, that kind of uh, channel we don't yet know, and much much will depend. I think also on the uh, desire of the parties to be able to sort of move on and, and look at that. I mean, I think that certainly again, and this goes back to the issue of the appointments in, in the incoming administration. I mean, I think given that there 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 are plenty plenty of people coming in now who have uh, you know historically friendly relationships with Israel, I think they'd like to be able to maintain that to the extent that that's true. It provides an opportunity for for the ambassador and for everybody else to sort of walk in and to be able to, you know, to respond to that situation. Um, 
I mean, I think there there is some credence in that, you know, to that question of whether or not Israeli after after four years of Donald Trump, at least, and maybe dating back through to the Obama administration, whether or not Israel has forgotten how to speak democratic. Um, so it could be a bit of a challenge. On the other hand, I mean, much much of uh, a pretty well a large degree of of Israel's uh, stature in the world and much of them achieved has been very much has has uh, drawn on the fact that Israel has, has drawn on famous bipartisan support in Washington. So I don't think I don't think that uh, you know whether it's an easier task or a more difficult one. I don't think that that any ambassador or any Israeli official sort of has the luxury to. Uh, not to learn to speak democratic and to be able to communicate with the incoming administration so insofar as they hope to be able to to maintain that important uh that important alliance just on the abraham accords which uh we're biking have kind of focused a lot on and uh, and and but i'd love to take have your take first of all kind of as a political insider kind of that may have been aware of kind of covert relations in the past how surprised were you and kind of uh, what do you kind of anticipate as the uh, as the next steps going forward well, I mean, I, th- I think that, I think the surprise that most people felt, maybe if it can be called a surprise at all, was in the timing. I mean, it's been wi- widely reported, and you know, take, taking these relationships out of the closet. I mean, I think was not a huge surprise to anybody in the sense that everybody knew that there was certain, you know, there were there were there were security and there were you know commercial re- relationships that you know that had been taking place over many years, sometimes through the parties or you know or proxies, however that played out. Um, so I don't think that there's actually any shock about it. Uh, the accords themselves seem to be wildly popular, certainly in Israel, and I, I you know, as far as I can see, uh, as well in the Gulf. I mean, from the amount of traffic that we've seen and the amount of interest, you and I were talking earlier, and I said, you know, if you if you listen to the chatter in Israel, it's as if like you know the other other countries have just dropped by the wayside because you know all the uh, all the talk is of people talk planning trips to Dubai and planning you know uh, investments and joint investments and, and delegations coming back and forth. So I mean, you know, it, it's certainly something. Shall we say that you know it's time has come. Um, for Netanyahu, at least the timing, I mean, obviously the timing is important for his own personal situation and for his, you know, sense of achievement. Um, it's also been a vindication of, shall we say, of, you know, what he's called his sort of peace for peace paradigm, um, that, uh, that in return for, for peace with Arab countries, that the relationship itself is, you know, sufficient and that he doesn't, would not have to pay in any coin, shall we say, on the Palestinian track. And then in fact, as he said, that, uh, that the, the existence or non-existence of progress and negotiations with the Palestinians should not constitute some form of veto in these relationships, mutually bene- beneficial relationships that Israel has maintained with other Arab countries for moving forward. And, and in fact, I think we've seen globally pretty much wall-to-wall support for the accords, except, as we said, maybe for the Palestinians who feel that this is not the time for normalization with Israel if, and, until their, their problems are redressed, um, and for other people in that camp, like the Iranians and the Turks. But as far as all indications are right now, I mean, it seems that those things are moving full steam ahead. Um, in fact, the Atlantic Council, where, I, where, I'm, uh, where I'm a senior fellow, as you said, has actually entered into a trilateral relationship now with the uh, INSS in Tel Aviv and with the EPC, the Emirates Policy Center in, uh, in the Gulf as well. So, I mean, a lot of people are taking advantage of that to sort of tighten up relationships and to, uh, you know, and to, and to see uh, ways that, uh, that the countries can move together in sync for, the, you know, for their benefit and for the, for the benefit of uh, other people who... Uh, you know who have who have uh, relationships in the region as well. Um, and the, the last the last subject I wanted to broach with you is kind of domestic Israeli politics again, as I as, as I've repeated, kind of drawing on your experience, kind of in government for so so many years. I mean, just to start with, just how how dysfunctional is this government compared to <laughs> compared to predecessors? Well, I mean, you know, government sometimes can be inherently dysfunctional for all kinds of reasons. We know. I think that I think that. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we're 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 in a 
Israel's in a, in a malaise right now, uh, certainly as far as government is concerned. There's, and I've written about this, unfortunately, extensively, where I think that we've seen a play out in a lot of, in a lot of different areas, even, even including with the, you know, aspects of the, the Abraham Accords, but certainly in dealing with the virus in Israel and, 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 and uh, the fact that, that Israel still has, has not had a, a, a formal budget passed for over two years. I think that there's, there's a general sense in the country, shall we say, that, uh, that, that the pursuit of, of partisan politics between the, between the parties and the players, individuals involved has taken precedence over, over, um, over functional policy um, and that people are suffering. So, I mean, I think we, you know, we see an incredible degree of dysfunction manifest obviously in the fact that Israel is, seems to be on the verge of its fourth election in just under two years. It's unclear that that even this fourth election would resolve anything and restore government to Israel that was a little more coherent and a little more functional. As I've suggested to many people, a lot of times people will say, well, why do we need to go an election? It, uh, it sort of it continues to paralyze the country. It costs a fortune. It won't change anything. But I think we both recognize, unfortunately, that, that in many cases, those are considerations that are entirely irrelevant. I mean, I think it's just sort of a dynamic in play right now where if the parties can coalesce around any policy and spend most of the trying time to trip, trip up each other's initiatives, um, you know, this could very easily spiral out of control and take Israelis back to the polls again. So, so unfortunately, it doesn't look like the dysfunction of which we speak is about to abate anytime soon. Right. I mean, with your, with your crystal ball, do you think uh, this December the 23rd deadline to pass the budget is a, is a hard deadline or will they find a way to, uh, to extend and kind of limp into 2021? <laughs> never say never. All right. Well, listen, Sharon, we thank you. We're, we may well come back to you uh, early in the new year to, uh, to revisit these subjects and, uh, and to hear your analysis again. But for today, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard.